Welcome to Science Talk, the weekly podcast of Scientific American, posted on January 15th, 2010. I'm Steve Mursky. And a new Scientific American magazine is out. Mariette DeCristina is our editor-in-chief. We sat down in her office to talk about some of the contents of the latest issue. Mariette, it's 2010. I love it. And we have the January issue out. Fascinating articles. But there's one article, and it's not the cover article on life in the multiverse, that really just amazes me. The one that really just blows my mind is the one about the virtual gold farming. <laughs> I knew you were going to say that. Why don't you just explain to everybody what it is, virtual gold farming? Okay. I lo- yeah, I love this article. It's actually it's a fascinating area, and it's one of one of the ways I think that we see technology changing human life and yet not changing human life because what it really – Reminds me of a lot is is and it's not funny, but sweatshops. Once upon oh, that's a time, exactly it's the what same came kind of thing. But let's let's back up, Steve, and we'll tell tell people what this is about. So, you know, the ancient alchemists would try to turn dross into gold. Um, there are people who mainly are in developing countries who are turning virtual gold into real money, and the way they're doing it is is really through the sweat of their brow. They are online playing virtual reality games like World of Warcraft. And, um, EverQuest too. And they're getting on these games and engaging in activities that win them virtual currency or virtual money. You know, they're working in mines on the games or they're chopping down timber. And when they earn that virtual currency, they sort of stockpile it through the efforts of their labors. I mean, imagine a sweatshop where everybody is in front of a computer screen. And what their, and their job is, the sweat is to run your key, your fingers really fast over the keyboard and, and use your mouse to see if you can cut down more timber or, or mine more minerals in the virtual world and thus accrue more currency, which they then trade to people who buy, you know, the use of the currency with real money, like $5 for so much in the virtual world. And there's exchange rates for this. So you, you have a game player here in the U.S., let's say, it's mostly here in the U.S., who wants to get a a particular weapon or reach right. another level in the game, and their own skills are insufficient. Or maybe they don't have enough time. You know, they just want to use it on, on, their, on their leisure time, and they don't have the ability to spend 10 hours a day acquiring the currency so they can buy the right sword or get to the next level. And these games, I thought I would just na- mention the, the, you know, the, the group name for them is massively multiplayer online role playing games. You know, so, and I've named a couple of them World of Warcraft and, and EverQuest too. And they enable people to step into virtual worlds that look, you know, like, like Second Life or things like this that look fairly realistic but stylized and they have their own kinds of commerce. So you want to buy a sword or a grenade or whatever for your war in World of Warcraft, you need virtual currency to do that. And this is where these um, these gold farmers, virtual gold farmers, we'll call them, come in through the sweat of their brow acquiring virtual, cur- you know, virtual currency to then trade for real. And we have a photograph of a uh of a room where, I mean, it really does conjure up images of sweatshops, except instead of sewing machines, right. there's one computer terminal next to another. They're elbow to elbow, the the players, and they're just playing the game for 12 hours a day. Right. And would we say massively multiplayer? I mean, these these are 
big engines of commerce at this point. Um, we have a bunch of stats in the article really interesting about how big the scope of these are. One of them that really rang home to me is that $200 million to $3 billion is the estimated amount of currency trading hands, you know, real currency trading hands to virtual for, for virtual currency for people to play these games, which is just astonishing to me. It, it is, and yet I, I've, I've been thinking about it in terms of the value that we put on anything. I mean, why does real gold have the value that it does? I've never really been able to figure that one out. <laughs> so why should make-believe gold in the game player's world be any less real as a as an economic entity, I right. guess? Right. Right. I mean, I, I suppose we're surprised about this in some ways because it just sprang up in recent years. Um, but in many ways, it's, it's, as we started to say at the beginning of our conversation, it's a human pattern repeating itself. There's a, there's a small group which has money, but maybe not enough time, or maybe they just don't care. Maybe they just want to cheat and go the easy way out. And there's another group that doesn't have money, but has time and labor. You know, and, and when we speak of labor, the, the average monthly salary of a gold farmer in China, which is one of the countries where there, there are quite a number of these, is only $150. So we're talking about people who don't have a high level of income who can then benefit. Really, you know, maybe they wouldn't have had other opportunities. I, I don't really want to, you know, make some kind of moral judgment about whether this is, is good or it isn't good. What we're seeing here is a pattern that we've seen in humans before. Some people have resources, others don't, and they're trading for things that they have value to each of them. Although there are some very serious game players who feel very free to make moral judgments about this. They think this is really bad because it's cheating. Well, it is cheating. I mean, there's no doubt about it. But you think about human history, people who have had additional resources have always cheated. And, you know, probably... Elsewhere in the multiverse, I know we'll eventually get back to that one. There are people cheating right now. I was going to bring <laughs> in us all to, new the, ways. to the multiverse. <laughs> Life in the multiverse is our is our cover story. Basically, we're talking about the the notion that maybe this universe that we're in, which seems to be just so finely tuned for life, as to make you think that there was something special that went into its design. Well, maybe it's not that special. Maybe. Maybe there's a whole bunch of universes where life could have sprung up with, with different kinds of parameters. You know, as a, as a longtime Star Trek fan, one of the things I love about this article is it, it lets us talk about real science, multiple universes, and life elsewhere in both our universe and, and others, and, and who can resist that, especially to kick off 2010. It's like a door opening <laughs> and then closing. And then closing. So, but the very real, um, you know, the very real science behind this or part of it is, is, is this, as you, you started to allude to, Steve. People have got suspicious and, and I think it's scientists' job to be skeptical, so it's perfectly reasonable to be so. Why is the universe so perfectly suited to life and why is it so, as you said, finely tuned? If, um, if the mass of a proton, for instance, were just 0.2% more than it is today, um, atoms wouldn't have come together in the complex shapes. And we wouldn't have the, co- the chemistry that enables life today. So if you tweak things just a little bit up or a little bit back, you remind me actually, I had a, a chat with uh, several months ago with Nobel Prize winning uh, physicist Frank Wilshek. And we were, we were chatting. We were talking about the universe in general, as he often does. And he said, you know, 
if I were the one to make the choices about how, you know, the constants, the so-called the rules, uh, you know, the things that don't change in the universe, if I were allowed to do that, I wouldn't have tuned it the way it is today. Now, this is a further conversation I should have with Frank Wilshek someday, but what this article does is let us see through a series of thought experiments, what if you did change the constants here or there? I mean, what if you change one, as scientists do, to eliminate variables, and then kept everything the same, and then, like a movie, re-ran the evolution of the universe and saw how it turned out. And um, one of the interesting things about the work that the researchers who wrote this article showed in, in it is even if you can eliminate one of the four basic forces that currently guy, you know, govern the universe a, as we know it, you can create through tweaking, you know, just that one thing, removing that one thing and tweaking a couple of others, a universe where life again could arise. So the problem of whether life is unique to this universe, you know, Maybe our universe is not so special if, if removal of even something as, as basic, you know, one of the, you know, the, the four foundational forces is removed and you can still get chemistry that could support life as we understand it, then what else could you change? And that's really what we're talking about. The ability under a certain set of conditions for complex chemistry to take right. place because you can have atoms of different elements arise of heavier weights. And eventually, those things would be the building blocks for anything that would be alive. And I want to say that multiverse theory didn't just pop up yesterday. This has been developing since the 1980s, partly in answer to the, the fine-tuned questions that we were raising before, which is called anthropic thinking about the universe. Could it be, you know, tuned for people particularly? And so theoretical, um, you know, cosmologists and others were starting to think, well, what, what else could have happened? Um, how could universes have also budded out from the vacuum that existed at the origination of, of everything? To a certain degree, this is as much a philosophy article as a science article. In the sense, I think, that philosophy is so often concerned with our origins and our eventual endings. I think that it is. But it was all really grounded in what can you do with the math? How does it actually work? If you, you take the systems that we, you know, know today and adjust them slightly, then, then what happens? And run the movie again, then what happens? And I think this is a way, this is kind of an interesting point, actually, is this is a way that theoretical uh, astronomers can try to put experiment to their ideas, to be able to actually take the math and run it. We never actually could make contact with another universe among the multiverse. Or we, in this case, we're running it. We're running it with computers. We're running a model. Yeah. We're not creating. Well, that would be really fun. Speaking of Star Trek, if we could create our own little baby universes out of a primordial vacuum, boy, that would that would be. Uh, but no, we're we're running this through models, which actually, you know, is how a lot of science is conducted. I think people don't give enough appreciation to the value of of models and you know running math for various thought experiments. If you did away with the idea of parallel universes. What percentage of Star Trek episodes would you have to throw out of the of the catalog? <laughs> That's an excellent question. <laughs> and are I there, think we'd need math to solve it. <laughs> are the parallel universes or parallel evolution of planets? But uh but that's for another show. So uh back here on Earth in this universe, 
we have a a really tremendously sad state of affairs with neglected diseases, tropical neglected diseases in developing countries. And we we do have an article about that in this issue in which the author talks about what we could do to try to alleviate that to to a great degree and how how doable it really is. There are folks here who, through lack of a pill, you know, you could create a poly pill for less than $5 a person and solve probably, you know, the, the um, I think there are seven diseases, mainly um, parasite-related, that uh, people get. They're called neglected tropical diseases because we, we don't give enough money to solve them. We don't uh, put aside the resources that are needed to treat the people. And also, they're really hard to – you can treat the people and then it's it's hard to prevent reinfection because maybe I have acquired a parasite in water and I take the pill and I get cured and then I go back in the water again because I'm going to have to go back in the water again. Maybe I have to wash my clothing. Maybe I need the water to drink. So it's really – it's difficult to remove it entirely. And yet if you put these – seven debilitating diseases together, they afflict an enormous number of people, and, 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 and as you say, a sad and astonishing number of them. Now, the author's name is Peter J. Hotez, and uh, let me give a little plug to the profession of science writing, because he became interested in medicine when he was a kid, and he read the classic Microbe Hunters by Paul de Kroof, which I'm sure you read when you were a kid, I read yeah, we all had to read that when we were a kid in, usually in junior high school. And, uh, but, you know, some of us didn't go as far as this guy and he actually became a, uh, a doctor and a researcher specializing in parasitology. And the, the, what he calls the grizzly seven, these tropical diseases, uh, are roundworm, whipworm, hookworm, schistosomiasis, lymphatic filariasis, Oncocerciasis and trachoma. And, uh, let me just turn to the very end of the piece. I don't want to give away the surprise ending, but, uh, you know, this is, this is real life here. This is not a novel. So we're talking about neglected tropical diseases, which he abbreviates as NTDs. And he writes, uh, the big donor countries have chosen to focus primarily on HIV AIDS tuberculosis, and malaria, which are fatal unless treated, other development programs viewing NTDs as a symptom rather than the disease have preferred to concentrate on what they see as the underlying problems, such as poor sanitation, lack of access to clean water, and poverty in general. Those are laudable aims, the writer says. But the empirical reality is that NTD drugs are the single most cost-effective way to improve the health, education, and well-being of the world's poor right now. Yeah, and we're talking about almost uh, almost a billion people who are affected by these seven, the grizzly seven, as the article calls them. So, uh, Steve, another article in the issue that I, I would like to talk about briefly, at least, is speaking about being careful of the world as it as it currently exists and and using science for the benefit of, of that world rather than otherwise. Um, many people think that nuclear war is, is not a problem to be concerned about anymore. And I, I just want to call readers' attention. There's there's also an article in this issue about the effects of um, small so-called nuclear engagements and or local nuclear war. And this article explains the 
potential global war, uh, global cooling impacts and um, farming devastation that can uh, unspool after a, even a limited engagement. And I, I think it's it's particularly appropriate reading these days, given the strife that has been ongoing between India and Pakistan. Yeah, this article focuses on uh, an India-Pakistan uh, scenario where 50 nuclear weapons are detonated by each side. And 100 nuclear weapons is, you know, that's a lot. But we're talking about smaller weapons, not the uh, megatonnage of uh, the U.S. and and old Soviet arsenals. Um, I mean, obviously, this would be unbelievably devastating with tens of millions of people dead, maybe hundreds of millions. But if you think that just because you're living in, uh, you know... Right, in the U.S. Comfort on the West yeah, Coast of the U.S. That's not your concern, right. yeah. I mean, to, to your point, Steve, I mean, even a limited engagement like that, it might... Uh, it would cause unbelievable damage and destruction, and it might um, kill outright, let's say, 20 million people or so. In, in the scenario that the article discusses, a further 1 billion people could then die from starvation that would follow as particles in the atmosphere clouded over the sun's light and made it so that farming was impossible and, and also cooled the climate and caused early frosts and and the uh, frost to continue late into the growing season, what would normally be a growing season. We did a, a major kind of policy review of the India-Pakistan we did. nuclear situation, what, about 10 years ago? It was ago? a December, I remember it was a December cover story, and we did. We did a review on policy there and how we might, you know, encourage a better resolution. It was, it was a while ago. I think it was eight years ago. Uh, that reminds me. There, Frank Wilczek, who you brought up earlier, uh, we have a podcast interview with Frank that's uh, in our archives, and I believe it was in late spring of 2006. But at the end of this podcast, I will come back on and tell you exactly how to find it. We also have a – it's kind of a, a, a photo essay with uh, with a great deal of, of information in the captions about the uh, the next 20 years in microchips – it's carbon nanotubes. I was going to say, and as you might have surmised, our favorite four-letter word, nano, <laughs> is the solution, right? Nano tubes, nano wires, graphene, graphene, which is also, um, you know, at, at its fine layers, you know, um, it's it's carbon-based, but but also nano in scale. Uh, so check that out because there's a lot of interesting information there, and it's it's not just nanotubes though. There's uh, there are a plethora of ideas. Right, it about talks where about memory, circuit elements. You know, how how does one uh, process faster? And all, a variety of processing advantages for the next twenty years. And uh, as we often do, let's take a look at the fifty, one hundred, and one hundred and fifty years ago column. Always a blast from the past. January nineteen ten, Scientific American wrote about automobiles, which were all the rage. And we said, convincing evidence that the automobile of today is as far perfected as the materials of construction and mechanical ingenuity will allow is afforded by the fact that the cars shown in the two annual exhibitions this year exhibit no novelties of a radical character as compared with the cars of the preceding year. The present flood tide of prosperity in the automobile industry is due to the fact that people of moderate means 
who have been waiting until a thoroughly serviceable car embodying the latest improvements was placed on the market at a low price are now being accommodated. And we have a picture of the uh, automobile, the state-of-the-art automobile of 1910, which uh, I don't think would pass current safety regulations, <laughs> what with its complete lack of any side impact airbags. Or and seat belts, for that matter. Seat belts. Does it have windows? Windows. No. There's no windows. No. But uh, at least, you know, as as wrong as that might sound, at least we were correct in noting that the automobile seems perfected according to the available construction materials of the time. That was very wise and prescient of the, the editors at the time. But also, after a 100 years of engineering advances with internal combustion engines, this is, a, this is a problem we're actually living with today. In many ways, the engines we have now are much more efficient. They do a better job. So they're actually making it difficult for us to abandon them in pursuit of new technologies. And the big thing this year that you'll be hearing a lot more about, uh, folks, in the, in the next few months is plug-in hybrids. So hybrids where you would plug in to recharge the battery overnight, in theory, you know, off um, off the um, peak power grid times uh, for your local utility. And those things are becoming more attractive. But the fact is, after 100 years of engineering improvements of internal combustion engines, these other things, anything else we try to do, Sounds a little more expensive, so our, our, and is a little more expensive, so our values have to change too. And what I mean by that is we have to decide that there's a high value, just like the, the people who were trying to buy the sword and the virtual games had a value on that currency. We have to decide that there's a value in reducing carbon emissions and, um, thus encourage purchase and use of these alternative vehicles. That policy article on the India-Pakistan nuclear situation that we discussed was in the December 2001 issue of Scientific American. It's available at our digital archives, siamdigital.com. And my interview with Nobel laureate Frank Wilczek and his wife Betsy Devine is available at our website. Navigate to the May 3rd, 2006 episode or just go to www.snipurl.com slash Nobel Frank. We'll roll out the news quiz totally bogus in a separate standalone episode coming soon. Till then, get your science news needs met at www.scientificamerican.com where you'll find Catherine Harmon's January 13th article on the seismology of the Haiti earthquake. To find ways to donate to the earthquake rescue and relief efforts, go to redcross.org or Partners in Health at www.pih.org or numerous other agencies. For Science Talk, the podcast of Scientific American, I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us. <laughs>